All right, good afternoon, everyone. Let's get started. Our clock is, uh, is running already, so I don't want to cut us short. Welcome to the MLP session. My name is Michael Jabbar. I head up exchange traded fund and, and closed end fund research uh, at, at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Um, before we begin, I just want every panelist to take about a 30 seconds to a minute uh, to briefly introduce themselves and their firms and, and what they do. Let's start with, uh, with Jeff. Yeah, hi, I'm Jeff Jorgensen. I'm a portfolio manager in Brookfield's Public Securities Group, specifically focused on uh, energy infrastructure, or MLPs, and we manage about $4 billion across an open-in fund, closed-in fund, and separate accounts. Hi, uh, Colin Bell, Goldman Sachs. Uh, I'm part of our, our asset management uh, group, uh, and specifically we sit within Fundamental Equity that manages $55 billion. Uh, and I specifically sit on our energy infrastructure team that manages uh, roughly seven and a half billion across uh, open end, closed ends, RIC funds, C Corp funds, uh, the whole shebang. Hello, I'm Jay Hatfield. I'm the I'm CEO and founder of Infrastructure Capital, and we manage um, three ETFs: one uh, MLP fund, which is AMZA, and two preferred stock funds, PFFA and PFFR. Uh, my background is I started out as an investment banker at Morgan Stanley and then worked on the buy side for two hedge funds, most notably uh, SAC Capital. And then about 10 years ago, I founded an MLP, NGL Energy Partners. And then after um, that became public, we started our um, money management company and we launched AMZA about five years ago. Great. I'm Greg Murphy with Tortoise Capital Advisors. Um, we manage about $21 billion total. About $17 billion of that is in our energy platform, including MLPs and, and midstream. Uh, we run separately managed accounts as well as the closed-end funds and the open-end funds. Great. So I prepared a, a number of questions, which, which I'll ask each uh, panelist. And then I do want to leave about 10 minutes at the end for all of you to, to, to ask whatever you'd like. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm an analyst, and, and one of the areas that we do cover is the MLP space. And as you can imagine, over the last, call it three, four, five years, uh, we've gotten a number of uh, questions, hate email, you know, it, it, it ranges. And uh, it, it's sort of been uh, back and forth. Sometimes the sector is hot, sometimes it's not. More recently, for the last four years or so, it's probably been hot less than actually hot. So um, with that, uh, Jeff, you had sent over a great slide uh, kind of uh, highlighting what's gone on over the last three to four years. In about two minutes, can you just sort of set the table for the panel and, and just talk about sort of where, where we've been the last four years? Sure. So can I move to the next slide? Is it, or do we okay, keep going? I just want to look at one slide. Who's got it? Yep. We'll keep going. All right. This slide right here. So um, in an attempt not to overly complicate what has happened to MLPs, I've put up a very simple graphic here. Um, when capital markets were working and MLP payouts were sustainable and growing, uh, you can see the orange line, which is fund flows, go up and up and up as the AMZ's payout goes up and up and up. And as capital markets dried up with commodity prices in late 14 and companies started transitioning to a self-funding model and simplifying, you saw distributions go down and down and down and down four years in a row and fund flows followed. That orange line now in 2018 and, and where we are in 2019 is about a decade low. So in an attempt, I mean, we can talk about fundamentals, valuation, all sorts of stuff, but basically we raised the distribution for a number of years and then started cutting it year over year, year over year, year over year, year over year. Importantly, in our estimation, the 2019 bar is back in the green. 
uh, or navy blue, according to this color schematic. So returning the corner, but troughing and getting into self-financing has been a painful trade. Fun flows have followed, and that, that's really as simple as we can make it. That's great. Thanks for sort of you know setting the stage. And Colin, I'm going to jump over to you. And you know one of the, the narratives when a lot of the as an example the MLP closed end funds came to market, or even uh, just MLPs and the underlying MLPs in in, in general is that. Uh, MLPs are not correlated with commodity prices. It's more of a sort of a volume or toll road approach. And then, you know, that, that seemed to hold for a while, but then call it 2015, uh, it, it appeared, you know, as, as commodity prices did drop, they actually became perfectly correlated. Like, how would you, uh, I don't want to call it defend MLPs, but how would you explain that? Yeah, I, th I think a defense is in order here. <laughs> um, so uh, you're absolutely right. You know, energy infrastructure, it's everything that sits between the energy producer and the user. Um, and uh, ultimately, the way the cash flows work is, is it is predicated on commodity volume growth, um, not commodity price appreciation. Um, that generally is the case under normal circumstances. Um, but in 2015, um, it was no longer normal. And what I mean, what do I mean by normal? Um, essentially what you need to have is the commodity price above the average profitability break-even point for your average energy producer in, in North America. And, and as long as that commodity is above that break-even point, um, then the companies are gonna to continue to produce energy and that's good for energy infrastructure companies. So what happened in 2015 is the commodity price dropped below those break-even points. Um, so that created a lot of concern around future production growth and a contraction of growth. Um, that then led to concerns about uh, the financing environment. That led to concerns about counterparty risk. Um, and in that environment, uh, essentially everything that was energy related, regardless of where it sat in the energy value chain, um, correlated very highly to the price of oil. So no doubt 2015 was a very challenging year. Uh, in fact, energy infrastructure, I think, traded down pretty much in line with the price of oil in 2015. Uh, but we do think long term, uh, under normal circumstances, things should and will revert back to um, being less correlated to the price of oil. Um, and that's an expectation we have on a going forward basis. Sure. And you talked about break-evens and sort of once it crossed that threshold, that's when the correlation spiked. What, I mean, I know every sort of field is different, uh, every basin is different, uh, but what would you say, just on average, what are, what are some of the break-evens if, if you could sort of ballpark it right now? Yeah, you're right. It's very difficult because it ultimately depends on the producer and when they got there and what the land prices was then, whether the cap spend be ahead of them or behind them, and there's a whole bunch of things that contribute to a producer's break-even, and, and that tends to also correlate to what, what geography. Uh, but again, to your question, what if a gun put to our head, what would we say it would be? I, you know, I, I think said another way, if we think oil drops below $45 WTI, the, how it trades here in North America, uh, then that should have a negative implication on production growth. So just you know, bluntly said, you know, as long as oil is above 45, we think we should be in a good place with respect to production growth and hence cash flow growth for, for energy infrastructure. Sure, and I'm gonna make you play defense one more time before I let you off the hook as far as, you know, uh, MLPs and interest rate sensitivity. Mm -hmm. The notion or the narrative is that MLPs are not interest rate sensitive, maybe more equity-like risk, they have high yields, they're dividends, uh, you know, they're dividend growers. Um, yeah. what, what, what's sort of the thought process uh, around uh, MLPs and interest rate sensitivity? Uh, 
Look, it's, it's a good question because MLPs have very bond-like attributes from the standpoint that they offer very high yields and they offer very predictable, I wouldn't say bond-like cash flows, but bond-ish-like cash flows in terms of just predictability. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, they're, they're equities. Um, and said another way, they have the ability to grow their cash flow, and it's really that, that growth of cash flow that, that gives a higher degree of rate resiliency for this asset class versus, versus bonds. Um, but the caveat here is um, while they're equities, they are kind of like REITs. They're, um, you know, they're very capital intensive businesses, more so than your average sector. Because the cash flows are more predictable, they tend to use more leverage. Um, and they also tend to pay out mo most of what they earn. So all those realities combined means they're just disproportionately relying on the capital markets and disproportionately sensitive to changes in access to capital and cost of capital. So um, said another way, they're you know, lowly correlated to rates, certainly less rate sensitive than bonds, but I'd say more rate sensitive than your average equity. Sure. Okay, great. Greg, I'm going to uh, move over to you. And, and obviously, a lot of volatility in this space the last few years. You had tax cuts in, in 2017 and a FERC ruling last year. Um, do you think we will see more uh, MLPs convert uh, into C-Corps going forward? Yeah, I, I think just to, to echo what we've heard from Jeff and Colin, you know, we talk about the process that Midstream and MLPs have been on for the, the last few years as MLP 1.0 moving to MLP 2.0. So you've seen moving from a, a business model where you're paying out almost all of your cash flow, um, raising if to the extent that you have any growth capital, you need to raise it in the debt market and raise it in the equity market. And today those firms have continued, those companies have continued to evolve where they are self-funding their cash flows. So what does that mean? Um, and one, one of the things that we always try and talk to investors about is that the cash flows really haven't gone down within the companies. How those cash flows have been utilized has changed. So we have seen a number of these companies continue to pay down debt. They have uh, moved to the self-funding models where they are funding the equity component from their internally generated funds. And I think this transition has been uh, very significant in 2018 we saw a significant amount of activity where companies that had two publicly traded structures that were one being the MLP, the limited partner, the other publicly traded security being the general partner. And we saw what, what has been referred to on the panel and what we call the simplification, where instead of having these two currencies and inter-party relationships between the two, it really collapses into a single entity. Where we have seen most of the C-Corp conversions, so some assets that were in MLPs now residing within C-Corps, were largely in companies that had a, a publicly traded MLP outstanding, but the parent company was a publicly traded C-Corporation. So in a, a situation with a One Oak or a Williams, the MLP was bought back into that C-Corp. We really haven't seen in the energy space conversions from MLPs directly into C-Corps. And in our conversations that we've had with, investment, with the companies that we're investing in, um, enterprises, planes, and, and other of the large MLPs, you know, they really point to the fact that they enjoy being an MLP, they like the, the tax treatment that they get, the, the C-Corporation taxes, as you alluded to, have come down. Um, however, you know, that could be a, a, a temporary scenario, um, and paying no taxes in, as an MLP is something that they want to continue to do. So we really aren't expecting to have more significant C-Corp conversions coming out. Mergers and acquisitions is always a wild card. So you certainly could see that through the M&A side, but I think natively a conversion of someone giving up the MLP turning to a C-Corp, we're really not expecting that. And just one more detail about that. 
when you talk to the management teams, you have to keep in mind that they probably are pretty major shareholders and their basis in the stock is nearly zero. So if they convert to a corporation, they pay uh, not capital gains tax, but recapture, lose 40% of the value of their equity, and in effect get a 40% reduction in the distribution. So the economics would have to be massively compelling. And actually, most corporate entities are trading around the same cash flow multiples as uh, MLPs are. And I guess along those lines, when, when we've seen these sort of M&A transactions, I mean, does it typically result in an immediate dividend cut, would you say, Jay, or is it? Well, that was the unfortunate element of it. If these uh, simplification transactions were not supposed to be happen the way they happened. Uh, in other words, the, the quid pro quo for the, for the GP getting the IDR cash flows was growing the distribution. And so the, what should have happened is a reduction in the dividend and then reduction in cash flow to the holding company. Um, but partnership law is much looser in terms of the ability of shareholders to um, litigate that. And so, and Kinder Morgan got away with it and so everybody else did it. But if I would point to the uh, NGL um, where I'm on the board, uh, we, instead of trying to do a simplification, or we legally could have done a, um, you know, exchange of common stock for uh, general partnership stock. Instead, we just cut the distribution and then the GP cash flow dried up like it's supposed to. So thankfully, though, those transactions are behind us because all the publicly traded GPs are gone. So um, that's one reason, like the other panel panelists, we're optimistic about the sector. And specifically, just to, to put an explanation point on it, we're projecting that um, the uh, large cap index grows their distribution by 6% on average. So your expected return right now, the, the yields are roughly eight. So your expected return is 14. And the way the math works on that, arithmetic really, is that um, even if investors don't really flock to the sector, if you just hold, the, hold it over the long term, you'll get that 14, assuming the growth continues. And that's really what happened in the 90s and 2000s before the crash is it just MLPs predictably produced low teens returns, valuations kind of fluctuated around between six and eight percent. And that's why like when these takeouts occurred like Kinder, there was big gains and everybody was angry because they had hold it, held it for five or six years. And so they had like a 30, 40 percent gain and they had to pay, pay recapture on that. Sure. Hey, Greg, back to you and, and you, I think you had mentioned this in your initial comments that you know, you don't foresee a, a, a ton more conversions or a ton more M&A, but obviously difficult to, to predict. What would you say, like, what, like ballpark, what does the market look like today, like the energy infrastructure market? Is it, say, 50% MLPs, 50% C-Corps? Is that a fair way to peg it? We'll yeah, it yeah. when you look at the, at, at the broad midstream market, it's about half C-Corp, half MLP. So you have about $300 billion in market cap on the C-Corp side. You have about $300 billion market cap on the MLP side. So it's really split in between the two. And, and one, one quick interjection there. There are more partnerships. They just tend to be smaller caps. So from a market cap perspective, about 50-50, from a number of securities perspective, leans a little bit towards the partnerships. And we're probably there as it relates to where it's going to settle. And I would say, though, that I don't think there's going to be a rash of, of BPL-like buyouts, but there's been a pretty steady flow if you include buy-ins of um, limited partnerships, like Valero bought in their limited partnership. And that's going to be one of the factors that, that, if not, hopefully, at least stabilizes the valuation, but maybe drives it a little bit lower, is some combination of 
outright buyouts, and then also companies are transitioning into doing share purchases. So enterprise um, that is now consistently buying back shares. Um, eventually, um, Plains and some of the other larger companies can do it. NGL has done it sporadically over the last couple of years. And so, because if you think about it, you don't need to do an entire buyout, you can just buy back some of your shares, just like every major corporation, most major corporations do. <clears throat> and that should help balance out the valuation, because unfortunately, MLPs are not in any indices, so they're a bit of an orphaned um, asset class, so therefore, they're not in broad ETFs, so when you buy a spider, you get no MLPs, except the corporate ones. So <clears throat> that's one uh, issue that the sector has, is they don't capture those broad flows into the market. Sure. Colin, over to you. In, in Jeff's initial comments, you talked about, say, like in 2015, early 16, that capital markets were somewhat frozen and shut off to, to the MLP market. Um, how do you view that today? Um, and then I know one of the things that we've done to, to analyze really the, the, the safety and the, um, the, the operational ability of, of MLPs is look at how their credit trades. So could yeah. you comment on sort of both of those aspects? Yeah, well, look, I, I think, you know, one of the benefits of the capital markets and, you know, having investors like all of us up here scrutinizing these companies is kind of there, there is, there comes a time where we, we can influence positive change. And I think, uh, you know, really what was uh, enforced on the sector sort of post-2015 was, uh, was ultimately sort of this transition of being just um, exceedingly reliant on, uh, externally funding your growth and as part of that using equity and debt to fund it to to as we discussed sort of more of these organically driven uh, organically funded you know business models um, and so um, so you know as, as part of that to your question um, you know there, there's definitely been um, a lot less equity issuance um, and a lot of it is just um, you know as, as Greg had mentioned it's just you know they're they're allocating their uh, organic cash flows in, in different ways. They're selling assets. They, they are, um, you know, shifting to some alternative sources of funding like preferreds and uh, JVs, including with the, the private equity world where um, kind of like in the real estate world, there's just been a record amount of, of capital raised on the, on the private side looking for a home uh, and, and some of the, the listed market looking quite attractive and these JVs being a you know, one of the ways that they can they can access this world in a in a pretty you know cost-effective, easy way. So, um, you know, that's kind of what's happening on the equity side. On the on the you know credit side, your question um, in terms of the the spread today, I want to say it's about 475 basis points above the tenure in terms of MLP debt. So not 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 exhibiting much stress. Yeah, on that front. yeah. Can so I go pretty, back to pretty normal on the debt side? Can I pull up one of my slides? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I actually have the equity capital markets by year in one of my slides. So if you go back a slide, um, back one more. Sorry, guys. So you can see these are the primary public equity issuances from 2005 to 2019 for midstream C corps and MLPs. And so you can see in the days when it was really working pre shale, you had five billion, you know up to 10 billion, maybe a little bit more in 2007. And then with just the sector, in addition to uh, commodity prices going down, they really just overdid it. You know, we, all, the, all the panelists have talked about over-reliance on the equity capital markets. You're asking Morgan Stanley, UBS, Wells Fargo, and retail investors to put away 30 billion of new equity every year. It just isn't gonna last forever. And so when commodity prices dried up, that happened quickly. But as we look forward, you can see 2019 estimates back to that $5 billion. 
you know, back, and that's doable, that's fine. You know, do bite-sized deals here and there, and that's, that's fine, event-driven equity. There's an IPO on the road right now, from what I understand, it's doing all right. Um, but it just can't be this 30 billion every year. And I think that's the big corporate finance story that distracted and hurt those distributions. And just <coughs> one clarification, like I was actually meeting with a company last week and they said, oh, well, we, we really can't issue equity. And so there's kind of this notion like the equity markets are shut, but they're definitely not shut. You can always issue equity essentially. It's just that it's not accretive and it's not attractive and your shareholders don't want you to issue equity, but that's not really shut. I mean, the high yield market was shut in the fourth quarter for, for the few high yield issuers. Um, but, but for a few, you know, highly disrupted markets, uh, MLPs can, as you pointed out, do IPOs and do follow-ons. But, but it's a little bit strange because even the companies will say, oh, well, we can't issue equity when it's actually not true. Sure, sure. Je Jeff, back to you. Um, you know, it, it, it seems like... Um, you know, something bad happens, we get past it, and everyone's sort of looking ahead and very positive in the MLP space, and then another shoe drops, mm -hmm. right? You know, um, what do you think? And it seems like it's every six to nine months in the <laughs> MLP space, the last, call it, three, four, five years. Um, I mean, w do, do you foresee anything coming out of left field um, that, that we're just missing? Right. So one of the shoes that dropped was FERC, right, in March of 2018. Big surprise um, from FERC. Um, and then most of the other shoes that have dropped are the quote-unquote drama in the sector have been around these distribution cuts or the simplifications and the move to self-funding so the or the you know cancellation of debt income or any of these you know wild things that have happened to the sector I think a lot of that's behind us I think the sector has matured so I'm not gonna sit here and say the FERC won't do anything that unexpected ever again or there won't be pipeline issues at the state and local level or commodity prices won't be volatile those things all exist, and these are energy equities. But as it relates to the self-inflicted pain and drama caused by simplification and self-funding, I do think a lot of that's in the rear view. And when you're in a self-funded model and less reliant on that external growth, it's less of a negative feedback loop effect when you do get that bad news. Sure. Yeah, I, I, just the only thing I'd, I'd add on that, um, it, beyond these shoes that, that dropped that you referred to, I think one of the one of the other reasons for the underperformance was just the perception of MLPs not benefiting as much from corporate tax reform, which is certainly true because they don't pay corporate taxes. Um, and so undoubtedly that was a factor in uh, 2017 to that, particularly in 2018. Um, but you know, really with, with that in our eyes, largely in the rear view mirror, and as you, you know, look forward, you can certainly argue that that ta tax benefit has been realized in the market. Um, you know, earnings growth estimates on the, you know, equity market are mid-single digits, um, as Jay had alluded to. You know, growth estimates here are arguably in line with that, if not higher, um, but with, you know, with much cheaper valuation. So I know we'll talk about Outlook later, but I think that the tax angle was, was another yeah, contributor. Absolutely. Jay, I know you write calls on, 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 you know, some of your portfolios, and I've always thought that's an interesting way, and you've been able to generate some pretty good income from doing that. Can you just talk about that a little bit and sort of what the premiums look like today? Yes, actually, it's, it's gotten the, the, the only, well, maybe not the only, but one of the good things about the consolidation um, transactions is that the stocks have become far more liquid. So if you look like at energy transfer, that's now a, quite a liquid stock, like trades really like an institutional stock. And so then the, the benefit of that is that the um, calls have become more liquid <coughs> and they're weekly. And so when we write calls, we tend to write them 
um, very much on the short end side because then you have a lot of decay and not a lot of capping of your upside. So that's a nice benefit. And it's also just easier to manage the portfolios because most of the stocks, um, you can move a lot of volume quickly. So I think that <clears throat> a byproduct of the consolidation was in a way to make the stocks more um, institutional-like, even though many institutions can't really um, own them for, for tax reasons. Sure. Uh, Greg, I, I just wanted to, to swing back to you, and obviously there's been a lot of volatility in the energy sector you know, over recent years. Uh, do, in, your, in your view, do we have an underinvestment issue here? Like, is this going to come back to roost in two or three years where you know, energy, energy prices just surge and, you know, we don't have enough pipelines? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and I'd go back to one of the comments I made earlier that the cash flows really haven't disappeared. Just where they're going has been at a different place. So the fundamentals underlying these securities have not been nearly as volatile as you would imagine based on the volatility of the stock price from week to week or, or quarter to quarter. And in fact, if you, you look at where they are on a fundamental basis, where, where the entire midstream is, we're really at record earnings and cash flows. And, and that is because we are at record volumes, we're at record um, demand, and we're at record exports associated with all of the three drillbit commodities. And I think that really underpins the outlook that, that we'll get to in just a minute. But from, from that perspective, we were expecting, we at Tortoise were expecting that we were going to have growth in, in crude oil, for, for instance, in 2018 that was somewhere in the U.S., somewhere a little over a million to a million and a half barrels per day, and what we got was something closer to two million. So we've sort of had some surprises and, and volumes to the upside, um, and we have been able to continue to build out the, the infrastructure that we need to continue to move those, those drill book commodities around the country and to build the export facilities that we need to continue to export those. So our expectation is over the next five years, we're going to continue to see growth in all three of the drill bit commodities. Um, some of the question is how quickly we accelerate. I, I think one of the, the pieces that many investors don't necessarily appreciate about energy generally is the fact that it's, it really has been Silicon Valley meets the oil patch. And so that the impact of technology and bringing down those, those break-even levels that we were talking about earlier have been phenomenal. The, the abilities that, that we have to be more efficient at, at the well and to translate those into being profitable at, at lower and lower prices is, is really phenomenal. So I, I think where we are going and, and where we have seen, there might be some bottlenecks going, but there really has not been chronic underinvestment in this space. Great. Uh, Jeff, back to you. Um, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, one of the positive theses or the bull cases within the, the MLP space or just energy infrastructure in general is uh, we need to see more institutional participation. And we've seen a little bit of that so far, but it really, my, my guess would be it's probably slower than, than most would have thought. You know, why aren't we seeing more institutional interest in, you know, products that yield 7 8%? You know, what, what, what is the, the, the hurdle there? Uh, is the billion dollar question. I was almost said million, but I think it's bigger, bigger numbers than that. Um, billion, trillion dollar question. Where is the institutional investor? Where is the generalist? Um, I, I'm interested in the other panelists' view on this as well, but I also think 7-8% yield you mentioned as why aren't they underwriting it? Because it keeps getting cut. So into them, when they're not doing homework, they probably think that that means they're missing something. You know, what's going on with the sector? What's going on with the operations? Why are the dividends, why do they keep going down? They don't want div distributions cut. They don't want dividends cut. And they also don't want all the drama in the sector. So some of the feedback we get is it's just too volatile to touch despite the opportunity. Still too volatile. So you going back to the question on drama and, and my answer on self-inflicted pain, 
I think the catalyst for this space, whether it be institutional, retail, or generalist, is to execute the plan without drama, don't cut the distribution, and live within cash flow, and do that for a while and slowly turn back. But I think it's the same reasons retail stayed away, to be sure. honest. I would just add a couple other points. Uh, first of all, the whole energy sector is now less than 5% of the S&P. So it's quite easy for a large cap manager just to basically ignore it, and not, maybe not even have an energy analyst. And it's very difficult to compete with these business models where you effectively have no invested capital and get lots of revenue, so Facebook and Amazon. And it's much, well, it's been more rewarding. Uh, those are larger cap companies. So it's pretty easy to see why um, large cap managers have shied away from it. And it hasn't just been MLPs. The ENPs have been horrendous investments. They've overspent. They never generate any earnings. That's turning around. But still, with less than 5%, it's sort of easy to ignore. Kinder Morgan's been trading better. So I think that's a good vehicle for people. It's a high-quality company. So that might be one of the catalysts is to have um, some of these larger cap corporate entities sort of um, gets a bid. Um, but it, it, it's almost better to have a market like today where the tech and the leaders are kind of stumbling a little bit and maybe there's a rotation back to energy. Sure, great point. So we have about eight minutes left. I want to open it up to the audience uh, for questions. If you don't have any, I obviously have more questions to ask, but let's open it up. Crickets, all right, I'm going to ask, keep on asking. I'll have these guys in, in 30 oh, seconds. We have, we have one, one question. Hi, um, you mentioned, um, Jay, that some institutions can't hold for tax reasons. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yes, yeah, so there's limitations. Almost or most institutions have limitations on it. So I used to work at SAC Capital. You can never, ever buy any MLP because it, they have, they're an offshore entity. So most large hedge funds are actually offshore entities. They're, not, they're barred legally from owning it. And then mutual funds have a 25% uh, restriction on them, so they can be more than 25% um, to maintain RIC status. And then also, I, don't, I think most of them though shy away from it because it creates tax complexity. Uh, so they prefer not to own them anyway, even though they theoretically could own them. So those are the, the two main drivers. So hedge funds do trade them on swap, by the way. So you should be aware that there could be a big short interest in an MLP you own, but you won't be able to see it because it's it's hidden through the investment banks that put on derivatives to, to short them. That's what you do when you're the hedge fund, or go long them for that matter. Up front here. I guess this is going to Jay. Um, I guess when, when um, Kane Anderson was trying to do their um, MLP hedge fund, they kind of did this structure where they kind of put it into some SPV and then they seasoned it and and they were supposed to put some amount of leverage and they didn't get a should letter by a major law firm. But are they still doing that or, or is that, I mean, are, are, I guess are, you know, offshore investment funds doing that? Well, I that don't know or? if they're doing it, maybe other panelists do, but what, one thing you can do to, to qualify is just like our ETF and I'm sure other, I think most of the other panelists have ETFs, their structures, corporations. So foreign buyers can buy corporations. So if you, if you shield it with a corporation, then it's not a problem. And that, that's part of the, the reason why the, the C-Corp universe of energy infrastructure, which as we talked about, has now grown to represent half the total market cap, um, you, don't, you don't have those issues. So it, it's a much 
uh, wider investment base, not just in terms of inclusion of journalists, but inclusion of, of non-U.S. investors and others where historically it's been a, a big challenge. We had a question over here. I'm just wondering how these companies can expand with the NIMBY problem. You know, nobody wants it in their backyard. Oh, with NIMBY? Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, that's a tough one, and it depends. It's regional, right? Um, Pennsylvania, obviously causing some headaches for energy transfer. North Dakota's done the same. Canada's got problems. And the Northeast has been a difficult place to build for, from a terrain perspective and from a state and local opposition perspective. Um, some of these projects do get done over budget and off time. Um, but the good news is most of the growth in, in the sectors is now. I think the most of the major projects are occurring in and around the, gold, in and around the Gulf Coast, Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, uh, New Mexico, to a lesser extent, where um, definitely in my backyard. So they <laughs> like the royalties. They like the, the right of way, the easement payments. And it's more of an NB problem. Um, so it's really re region by region, but the environmentalists know that instead of going after a landowner and his royalty in each individual well, you choke the pipeline by the neck and impair the entire, you know, the field or what have you. So uh, it's a problem that we have to deal with this in this industry, and we dedicate a lot of resources to managing around that from a risk-reward perspective. And, and you are seeing some of the impacts of that. I'm, I'm sure many of you are based here in New York, and you've seen at, at least the threatening of, of not adding new customers in, into the natural gas pipeline network or, or the retail side, just because the, the, la the fear of the lack of capacity to bring natural gas to that. A few, uh, the winter before last, the most expensive place to get natural gas in the world was, was Boston. So we actually saw Siberian LNG tankers diverted from Europe to Boston Harbor to offload natural gas, which is silly because it's just a few hundred miles away from, from all the natural gas fields in western Pennsylvania. But yet we struggled, we, the midstream has struggled to build those pipeline assets to bring the natural gas from western Pennsylvania to the Boston area. Uh, back to us. Thank you. Uh, in as much as uh, in the past there have been periods when retail investors have sold individual MLPs to buy funds, what does that, A, mean for interest in the sector if there's really no more differentiation between the entities? It's all kind of at the fund level from an investor point of view. And also, secondly, in as much as funds base their distributions on distributions received, how much of a delay, Jeff, to your point about uh, distributions going up, how much of a delay will it be before the funds actually can raise dividends again. I'm happy to take a, a stab at the first question. So I, I don't, in terms of the transition of um, clients owning single MLPs to, to a fund, I, I don't think that necessarily should be viewed as a driver for uh, higher correlation between stocks or lower dispersion of stocks, which is really what, what matters when you think about the benefits of active management. Um, I think, you know, we haven't really talked about this topic, but I, I would, I've been in the industry for over 20 years, starting as a research analyst covering REITs, and I transitioned into energy infrastructure for the primary reason of, one, I was expecting it to grow more, and two, um, it was probably the most attractive space to go active, um, you know, predicated on the fact that it's still extraordinarily expensive to go passive, the index is highly flawed, 
um, and just the degree of competition in the space is less relative to other parts of the market. Um, and, and, you know, there's just a lot of, you know, it's sort of a relatively immature sector relative to other parts of the equity market. We're obviously seeing a big evolution over the past few years to get it sort of more in line with broader equities. But um, all those factors um, continue to contribute to an environment where we think active management can add an extraordinary amount of value. And, you know, that's why most active managers actually outperform in this space, unlike broader equities. Um, and that, you know, that persists despite the trend you, you highlighted. Yeah, and your second question, Tom, was about the dividends received versus the delay and kind of how that impacts fund level dividends. So I know at Brookfield we, we employ a managed dividend you know, policy across our closed-in funds and our open-in funds, um, taking a, a look back and a look forward and managing uh, our investors also want a stable dividend. So we have a policy that's reviewed by our board um, and it looks at long time horizons. So currently we are troughing as it relates to cash flow received you know, as all the impacts of all the cuts are fully felt on a trailing 12-month basis. And now we can look forward with a lot of clarity and determine what our best dividend policy is from a business perspective and what our investors want. So there is a delay. I mean, you get them in the quarter, right? But as far as the management of our dividend, you can take, um, you know, it's a, it's a board decision, and we take a long time horizon. With that, we're actually out of time. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the conference.